What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up, a podcast about books, writers, life and love, and all things literary. Welcome to Lit Up for this week, everyone. Before we get into the interview with Salman Rushdie, one of my kind of heroes, um, I have a few announcements to make. Next week, I'll have Jennifer Egan on the show, who won a Pulitzer for The Visit from the Goon Squad. We'll be talking about her most recent novel, Manhattan Beach. I'm also going to be taking about six weeks off, so I'll be plotting and planning all the great things for next year. If you have any requests of authors you'd love to be on the show, please let me know and I'll start reaching out to them so we can make that happen. I'll have some big announcements, I'll have a beautiful new website and some really, um, hopefully, fabulous collaborations to tell you all about when we come back in full force. I'll be reposting some of the favorite episodes of the year during that time. But for now, uh, we're going to listen to an interview I did with Salman Rushdie at Random House's Off the Page event. We were talking about his most recent novel, The Golden House, which opens on the night of Barack Obama's inauguration and kind of follows the next eight years to what is a pretty tragic conclusion. Um, but do read the book. I'll give you a little bit of um, background here. So the Goldens are a family uh, who, have, who have a patriarch called Nero Golden. He's a very enigmatic billionaire and he's from a foreign country that isn't really named, um, but you soon work out where that, where that is. He and his three sons have moved to a place called The Gardens, a very cloistered community in New York's Greenwich Village. It's what one might call a bubble within a bubble. But we really get welcomed into this environment by one of the neighbours, uh, a young, ambitious filmmaker called Renee. So we kind of see this ecosystem through his eyes. I think that's enough for now and we can just launch into the conversation I had with Salman. I hope you enjoy the show and do um, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lit Up Show for all the announcements that will come. 
Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. We're going to jump right in. So, Salman, just kind of riffing off the video, um, I'm going to tap into the film nerd in you. Yes. And when did you first see Hitchcock's Rear Window? Because it seems to play a huge role. It's not only mentioned in the book, but it feels like it kind of maybe inspired the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I saw it probably, probably when I was somewhere around when I was at college, so in my early 20s, I must have seen it. And at that time, I, I knew next to nothing about New York City. You know, I'd, I'd never been here. Um, and when I got here, I discovered that, that almost everywhere is rear window. That, you know, <laughs> everybody's looking out of their back window into somebody else's back window. You know, and, uh, um, and so that was interesting. And then I actually discovered that the place where Hitchcock had kind of seen what he... I think this, in the film it's a stage set. I don't, I don't think it's a real place. It's a set. But it was based on uh, a place that he visited on Christopher Street, which was about 100 yards away from where my book set, uh, where, which is set in, these, in this secret garden, which I guess many of you may know about in the village. That's between, like, Bleecker and Houston and McDougal and Sullivan. Inside there, there's a secret garden. And um, I thought that was just a wonderful setting because it's almost like a stage set. You know, it's almost like an amphitheater with all these people looking out and the action of the main characters, you know, can play itself out in this, in this secluded space, you know. So it became... And then, yeah, and then I did think about Grey Window because everybody's spying on everybody else. Well, I'm really interested because... Yes, everyone's looking into this place. Did you get a chance to go to this garden yourself? Because yeah. it's a place where very fancy people have their houses, and I'm wondering if any fancy person invited you over one day. Yeah, yeah, I know fancy people. <laughs> <laughs> Who did you go? Who lives there? Well, well, the thing is that, strangely, when, the, when those gardens were built, those houses on, on McDougal and Sullivan... They were built by a developer who wanted them to be affordable housing hmm. for artistic people because he was worried even then in the 19th century that people like that were being forced out of the village by prices. You know? So it was, they were built as cheap housing. Now they go for like $15 million. You know? um, and, well, I, I knew two people. I mean, the, actually, the people to whom the book is dedicated... Um, the painter Francesco Clemente and his and his wife Alba that are good friends of mine, and they have, they actually have the house that Bob Dylan used to live in. Oh, wow. um, and um, so that was my first introduction. And then there's another writer friend of mine, Wendy Gimble, who also had a house across the way on the Sullivan Street side. And so yeah, I mean I've been going there for a long time, but it just suddenly it was one of those kind of light bulb moments when I suddenly thought, this is the place to put the story. You know, also because, you know, there's, in this book there's like a private story and a public story. You know, there's, there's the story of these characters and their, their, the golden fa family and their, and their family tragedy. And then around them is, you know, the larger tragic comedy of America. And, and I just thought the physical shape of it, to have this enclosed space in which the private story could take place, and then all around that would be the crowd, you know, of, of everything else. So that just, I just like that as a shape. 
Well, it's interesting because you mention kind of this idea of bubbles. And in our media now, we're always talking about like the liberal bubble or this bubble, you know, who knows? And you've talked really eloquently about, well, who is in the bubble? Are we in the bubble in New York or are people who don't believe in evolution in their own bubble? Yeah, and, I think, I think yeah. that's the bubble. You know, the bubble that what doesn't believe in science and, is, and has kind of social views which feel like they're out of the Stone Age. You know, I mean, that seems to me to be the bubble. It's a, there's a bad bubble. Well, because Renee's parents are these professors. Yeah. And they say to their son, you are the bubble boy. The boy in the bubble, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I just found... I mean, in the context of what's going on now, a really interesting idea. Yeah. Well, their view of the bubble is very specific, that it's not just a liberal bubble. It's actually not even a New York bubble because Manhattan, yes, in the bubble. Brooklyn, certain areas of Brooklyn in the bubble. Queens, definitely not in the bubble. <laughs> <laughs> Staten Island, forget about it. <laughs> so so it's, a, it's a very specific bubble. People want to be the bubble. Yes, but well, who would not want to live there? You know, um, so, I mean, of course, it's done for comic purposes. I mean, in fact, they, in the story, Rene is this young filmmaker who narrates the novel, and his parents are this rather kind of sweet, I think, yeah. couple of academics who kind of finish each other's sentences and have been having the same conversation with each other all their lives. So, um, and they have this view of of New York as the bubble, but you want to be in the bubble because you don't want to be in, you know, Kansas. They say to him, you wouldn't last five minutes in Kansas. And it's true, he wouldn't. Um, I remember, I can't remember if I put it in the book. Sometimes you can't remember what you That's leave in you and what you take. That's what you want the bits that aren't in the book. Yeah? The other bit. There's a bit where they're talking about how in Kansas, you know, even the boards of education don't believe in, in evolution and so on thus proving that Darwin was wrong because it proves that the fittest don't always survive. Oh. <laughs> Is there any, I hope no one's from Kansas here, but yeah, it's sorry, a very Kansas. lovely state. <laughs> well, let's talk about the Goldens because they are really the crux of this yeah, novel and yeah. they're um, kind of audacious, or particularly Nero, the, the kind of, um, you know, not the patriarch of the family. But I'm really interested in how, in identity, and how you kind of really write into that. And it's almost because the Goldens are incredibly wealthy, we kind of forgive them their, you know, eccentricities. Um, but also this idea that in America you can be, the, the idea of reinvention. Reinvention, yeah. Well, I mean, so it's a great powerful. theme. It's a great theme of American literature for a start, you know. Um, but this is a family that, as we, the reader quick, quickly discovers, so I'm not giving too much away, that they, the place they've come from is, is, is India, the city of Bombay, my old hometown. And they're clearly getting away from something very shady in their past. Mm. You know, there's, there's, so so their, their motivation for this enormous act of reinvention, of changing their names, of concealing the past, of, you know, um, refusing to admit where they come from, et cetera. Um, in their case, it's not like the normal immigrant thing of people wanting to come here and be new people in a new country. You know, it's, 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 it's darker than that. And so, they have the, so there is this big secret. And, and of course, eventually, 
The question is whether can you escape your past, you know, um, or does it come after you? And, well, I think in a novel it almost always does come after you because it would be a pretty rotten novel. <laughs> if, I, if I said, here are these people with a really terrible secret from the other side of the world, folks, but never mind that. <laughs> so, so obviously it blows up in their face. And, and, but, the, but from that center, the subject of, of our kind of obsession with identity issues you know, becomes quite central to the novel. And different kinds of identity issues, religious identity, gender identity, you know, um, all sorts of things. And the book becomes kind of about that in part. I invented this thing. One of the characters works at a place on the Bowery, of course, called the Museum of Identity. And, um, and I was rather proud of that. <laughs> and in fact, several journalists, including New Yorkers who came to interview me, said they had to look it up. Did you? I googled it. <laughs> they, had to, <laughs> they had to, to check that it didn't really exist. <laughs> well, it doesn't really exist, but I suspect it will soon. Don't you? I mean, it's a, um, given the preoccupation we have with the subject, somebody's going to you know, have that idea. Then I want my cut when they do that. <laughs> you know. But anyway, so the novel, you know, goes into all these different understandings of the word, because it's a really an umbrella term that, that contains you know, national identity. What is it to be an American now, especially now? You know, um, um, and and you know, as I say, gender and religion and, all, and, 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 um, and self. You know, the question is, what do we understand by the self? You know, at, at a moment when we are being asked to understand ourselves more and more narrowly, you know, because one of the things the novel has traditionally done is to, is to refuse that idea that the, the human beings are not simple. They're not like one thing. They're complicated and contradictory and rich. You know, and and so I worry about this pressure um, on us to narrow our self-definitions. You know, the book's sort of about that too. Um, but really, it's it's also a thriller. You know, because there is this secret, and. And one of the things about, I mean, I've never really written a book which had a kind of thrillish shape to it. And one of the interesting things about that, writing it, is that you kind of have to write it backwards. You know, you, because of, of course I have to know what the secret is that I'm not telling you. And then I have to judge how I drip it into your ears. You know, exactly what do I tell people when? And sometimes misdirection. You know, one of the great things about, you know, Agatha Christie is the way in which the plots don't just gradually tell you what's happening. They also make you think something's happening, whereas actually something else is happening, you know. And this is what Hitchcock, Hitchcock had a wonderful term. He, he called it a MacGuffin. Mm. A MacGuffin, because there's a character in one of his films called MacGuffin. But a MacGuffin is when introduced into the story, is you think, oh, it's, that's, it's about that. But actually, it's not about that, it's about that. You know, um, so making you look in the wrong place. So if you wrote this as a thriller, we have the golden story which you knew. Am I assuming that you predicted the outcome of the election? And yes, because that's well? the thing I can do. <laughs> yeah, just apply here if you want all ele elections predicted. Um, no, the truth is that really the way the, the book was written, I mean, almost entirely written before the election, and I had to do, I had to do a little bit of tweaking afterwards. Um, 
But really what René is this idealistic young American guy who is very anguished in some ways about the, about the division in his country, about the rift in society. And, and, he, and really, in a way, that's what he's thinking about, and that's the theme of the public part of the book. And I really think of, of, of Trump as being an effect more than a cause. You know, that, that's to say, if he didn't exist, that rift would still be there. And if he were to disappear tomorrow, that rift would still be there. You know? so, and yes, he's good at exaggerating it and, and, and making it worse, perhaps. But, but it was there anyway. And so given that that's what I was writing about, the actual election result wasn't that important. Because mm. you know? even if the election had gone the other way, that rift would still be there. You know? And, and um, so yeah, I mean, I did. But the, what is weird, though, is that I didn't think he was going to win. I mean, he didn't think he was going to win. You know? <laughs> Nobody thought he was going to win. And even right up to election day, I mean, I was, you know, anxiously hoping that the other thing would happen. But, but, but my book understood. that the, the, the kind of dynamic of the story in the book insisted that... that 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 thing was good, that this thing, the thing that happened was going to happen. And so I just, it, there is this thing that sometimes the work can be wiser than the writer. You know, the work can know something which the writer is trying very hard to resist knowing. You know, um, so yeah, in that sense, the book was, the book was kind of was prophetic, but I wasn't. Because I was telling people on election day that it was going to be fine and have a woman president. So I was totally wrong. But that thing knew. So the green man does insert himself, and we call, you also call him the joker. The joker. And I'd love to talk about, I don't know if you all agree, I feel like we're in a time where we have real villains. Yeah. I feel like we didn't have villains before. And I know they, your book is very Shakespearean, but it definitely captures this moment of like, I didn't know we had these adversaries that had faces now. Well, one of the strange things is how large and grotesque uh, the, the figures of power have become now. You know? and, and, and one of the things I thought, the words Donald Trump don't occur in the novel. Uh, but there is a character, a sort of Trumpy character. Uh, what I thought is in a deck of playing cards, the only two cards that don't behave properly are the Joker and the Trump. And I thought, well, I don't want the Trump, so I'll have the Joker. <laughs> so, so there is a character with very white skin, which he likes, and unusually colored hair, which it means the Joker is green, uh, who runs for president um, and wins. And, I ju and somebody in the novel says that this is not an age of heroes. You know, I think, and I think it's right. There, there's no Batman, you know, uh, but there is a Joker. So, so we we live in an age without the hero, but with the villain. I guess where are our heroes? Well, exactly, absent. You know, in some other place, finally realizing that they were fictional to begin with. <laughs> I mean, The Golden House um, is the title of your book, and it's The Golden Family. Can you tell us the origin of a golden story? Because I feel like 
now that I know what it is and you're going to reveal to everyone, I feel like we're in a moment of a tall like tale. That. Yeah. Well, we're this is the thing. It comes, from, it comes from ancient Rome. There's, a, there's this in, in somewhere in the histories of Pliny, there's a little bit where he says that on the street corners of Rome, there would be oral storytellers, you know, who, who were trying to drum up business. And, and what they would cry to the passers-by is they would say, give me a coin and I'll tell you a golden story. Um, and, and what they meant by that was a kind of tall story, a shaggy dog story, a, um, a, a fantasticated story. Um, and, and so that was, you know, that, I had that idea in my mind. Um, I'd read that kind of years ago and it sort of stuck there. Um, and then I thought, well, this kind of is that. It's a kind of, it's a story which is so extraordinary that you couldn't make it up. Mm. You know, I mean, I remember, it's one of the classic truth is stranger than fiction moments, you know. And, and I remember like a few weeks ago, my friend Ian McEwen was in town and we had dinner together. And we were talking about this and we were saying, you know, if either of us had written down the plot of what has actually happened in America and taken that to our publishers, <laughs> they would have said, go back and think about it more seriously because that's impossible, you know? that, that's totally implausible. And so we live in this moment in which the implausible is true. You know? And the, the impossible thing is, is what happened. Uh, and, and not just in America, you know, it's what happened in, in the UK as well with the whole Brexit nonsense. So everywhere you look, impossible things are happening. Yeah. Well, usually I know so many writers, if you are a writer, you know, people say, take distance, write this thing mm. and then put it in a drawer yeah. and you'll come back to it. But, yes. you know, I've, I've read or heard and you can tell us how... How, what it's like to write up against time. To get the present moment. Yeah. You know, it, is, it is something you're not supposed to do. You know? yeah. when, you're, when you're being taught creative writing, which mercifully I never was, um, you are told, you know, yes, you, you, that you need objectivity and distance and, and, and you need perspective and all of that you know, means that you have to wait before, wait before writing about things. Um, but A, I'm not good at doing what I'm told, and B, I think it's quite exciting to be, to take that kind of dangerous, I mean, it's quite right, it is a dangerous thing to do, because if you do it wrong, then your book becomes irrelevant in five seconds, like yesterday's newspapers, you know? Um, so it is very dangerous. You know, there's a, there's a wonderful, somewhere in Hemingway's bullfighting stuff, there's, a, there's this, uh, an image he uses where he says how the great matadors, the great bullfighters, were closest to the bull. You know, that's to say, if the bull is over there, it's not that skillful. When the bull is just grazing your thigh as it goes by, then it's very exciting, but it's also very dangerous because you can get gored and killed. Um, and I thought that writing up against the present moment felt like that, felt like working very close to the bull. You know, and that if you do it right, then you capture the moment, and then people now reading the book can have recognition pleasure. They can have the pleasure of saying, yeah, this is how it is. Um, and hopefully people in the future, if there are people in the future who read novels, 
um, <laughs> the, those people can say, oh yeah, this is how it was. So, so, and you know, there are many writers, great writers who have managed to do that. I mean, Fitzgerald did that. Um, Edith Wharton did that in, in, a, in an interesting way. I mean, James Baldwin did that. I mean, Another Country is a book of that sort, you know, written about the exact moment in which the book is written. And I thought this is kind of, it is scary to do it, but it's interesting scary, you know, uh, to try and make that happen, to make, the, make that work. Um, so, yeah, I, the, the story of the Golden Family I actually had in my head for quite a long time. That's, that's not something I just thought about. I had it in my head for many years, actually. But then to set it in this moment, which is right now, you know, um, required a certain amount of, you know, fancy footwork. Because, first of all, it means you have to be able to respond to things that are happening um, in order to try and capture the flavor of a moment. You know, whether, I mean, which can be something as big as the election or something as small as the cronut. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Small and delicious. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you need, you need all that stuff. You, know, you need to be able to just capture what's in the air and make, and make the moment out of it. You know? And, I mean, you'll have to tell me if you think I did it right or wrong, but that was, that was, the, that was the intention, was to try and capture a moment um, in a way that wasn't just transitory, you know, to capture the underlying thing of the moment as well as the surface. I mean, there was rereading the book in preparation for this uh, just this week. I felt saddened at how specifically well you had kind of captured what has just happened in New York the last few weeks with these attacks, you know, yeah. just a few streets away. And not to give too much um, away about the book, but was it important for you to address that violence as well? Well, the random violence of our time, you know, the, the fact that a man with a gun can point it out of a window in a hotel in Vegas and start shooting at any time, at anyone, you know. That, that kind of random gun violence that apparently it's never the right time to discuss um, is... is um, something I wanted to write about. So actually there is a, there's a scene, doesn't give too much away, but there is a scene in the novel which takes place on Halloween in those gardens where there's a little Halloween party and outside in the big Halloween, in the parade and all that, there's a crazy guy with a gun. You know, I mean, and the fact that, that, that on that same day in real life something of that sort took place is just an, a shocking coincidence. I mean, on a more positive note, <laughs> yeah. because get your questions ready, because yeah. we'll have questions in about two minutes. Um, we had elections last night. Yeah. And how do you feel about where the country is going? Do you feel like we may... Well, yes, was, there are villains, yeah. but... I mean, it was a moment, first, first moment of hope, you know, for a year, maybe. Um, and, well, for exactly a year, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I've, in my optimistic moments, I don't believe that, that, that Trump is the new normal. You know, I, I, I do think that in so many ways what happened, the margins were so small, and I mean, we know about the popular vote, but never mind that, just even within the game as played, you know, the, the margins were so small that that's, 
you can see, any, anybody can see that that's reversible. It doesn't need that big a swing in, in, in the public's voting intentions uh, to, to reverse that. And so I, I think it's possible, I think it's doable. You know, and I do think that those of us who are not of a Trumpic disposition need to get smarter. You know, I think uh, the left did a great job of destroying itself in this election. Um, you know, the circular firing squad, which is the, the famous characteristic of the left. <laughs> um, but I also think, you know, I don't think I don't think Hillary Clinton was a great candidate, and I think it was a rotten campaign. So we've got to get smarter about all that. And, and one of the things I really think is it's time for a big generation shift. You know, Hillary's 70, I'm 70, I'm not running. <laughs> um, you know, Trump is, what, 72. It's time, I think, for the next people. Yeah. You know? And I think if you look at what's happened in, in Canada with, with Justin Trudeau or in France with, with Emmanuel Macron, you can see the, the benefit of new thinking, younger voices, etc. And I think this country needs that. I think it really does, you know. And I mean, I don't know where they're coming from, but I hope some of those voices emerge quickly. Well, hopefully we get this message to them. Um, and I know that they were kind of activated yesterday. But, okay, we are at question time. We have very little time, so let's go. Short right. questions. Short questions. Raise your hand, we'll bring you a mic. Where's the mic? Oh, there's a question down here. Somebody got a mic? Yeah. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. Someone have a question? You've played yourself in at least one movie and television show recently. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what was it like working with Larry David? Was it great fun? <laughs> well, you know, I'm glad we're getting down to the serious stuff. <laughs> no, I mean, it was, it, was, it was two days of enormous fun. Uh, I mean, I, I had met him a couple of times before but I didn't know him very well, you know, and, and he just got in touch with me out of the blue and said, so I've written this thing and you want to be in it? And I said, well, what thing would that be? <laughs> and, and, and I said, could you send me a script? And he said, well, the problem is there's no script <laughs> because it's all improv. And, and I said, well, could you tell me what happens? And he talked to me for about three minutes and, and, and I said, yeah, that sounds funny, I'll do it. You know, so it was like that. And, and I literally arrived in L.A. to do it, having not seen a script. Uh, and, and uh, I mean, it's not just improv. It's, it's guided improv, you know, because so, they, they, you know where they want the scene to get to and, 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 and what story the scene is supposed to tell. But how you do it, that's, that's up to you. So they'll say, like, Okay, so Larry's going to sit there, and you're going to sit there, and he's going to say something like this, and you're going to really dislike it. You know? Like, he's going to say that he wants Jason Alexander to play you in the musical, <laughs> and you're going to really dislike it. <laughs> That's a go. <laughs> Which is made funnier by the fact that the Jason Alexander character in Seinfeld was, of course, the character based on Larry David. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, there are 
moments of which I'm proud, I mean, because, because, you know, there are no lines, so I'm more or less made up. The, the line about the fatwa being like sexy pixie dust. That was so that's, good. That's my line. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, it was just fun. It was just, I mean, who would not... I accept that, of course, afterwards, oddly not before, but afterwards, I got very nervous about the fact that I might be the only person in Curb Your Enthusiasm who's not good. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so that was worrying. All right. We have another question over here. Where? Here, here. All right. Okay, yes. Um, do you think that the writing community has been sufficiently vocal in raising the alarm against the war? the war that's being waged against journalists in this country? Say that again? Sorry, I couldn't quite hear the... What was the question? I said, um, do you think that writers, yeah. including novelists, are sufficiently vocal in raising the alarm... Oh. about uh, the attack on journalists? Yes, yes. Uh, well, I mean, I've been doing it, you know. I mean, I, no, I think, I think uh, you know, I think writers' organizations like Penn are very active in that right now, but I, I do think... I do think it's extraordinary uh, and, and not accidental and carefully planned uh, that, that this attack on, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the press is, is taking place. Because basically, if, if a leader can convince a population that the people whose job it is to bring them information are lying to them, then he is able to say the most dangerous thing, which is, I am the truth. You know? and, and, and that is, that is the standard path to authoritarianism. That, that's the first step. So in order to become authoritarian, you have to demolish people's faith in the news media. And so in that sense, I mean, I don't know that how, how well up on European history the 45th president is. <laughs> but I think around him, you know, people like Bannon and so on, they certainly knew what they were doing. And, and, and this was deliberate. And it, yes, it needs to be spoken up against. And I, myself, I, as I've been saying around the country during this book tour, I defend the New York Times against the charge of fake news all the time, except when it's reviewing my books. <laughs> That's perfect. Guys, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up, even though we would Oof. keep Salman for hours. Thank you for such brilliant questions. Thank you. And thank you for... Thank, thank you. you. For more about this interview and about Lit Up in general, visit us at thelitupshow.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lit Up Show. And of course, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.